Truth Espresso, episode 147. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, Truth Espresso friends, family, fans, and lurkers. <laughs> This is your host, Daniel Minnick, along with my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea. And we have a very um, personal episode. This episode, we are going to continue and conclude our series of episodes centered around the Thanksgiving holiday and the attitude of giving thanks, reasons to give thanks. And I'm sure a lot of you have events in your life in the past that you can look at and see where God was working out amazing things in your life where you have to look back and wonder if there wasn't God there, how would I have gotten through that? What a coincidence and the amazing providence of God in your life, maybe saving your life or saving the life of a loved one. And this episode, we're actually going to tell you the story of one of our sons. He had quite the story from the beginning, and we're going to share that there with you in the spirit of thanksgiving. And we're going to work into that also the angle of life, life-affirming aspects pro-life against the abortion industry because that kind of came up in the story with our son. And so here to talk with me and present this story is my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host Chelsea. So thank you for doing this with me again, sweetheart. Yes, thank you for having me. And so we've adapted this, what we're going to do about the story of our son from a presentation that we have given at several churches over the course of the the years, and the story has actually changed over time. It's grown since we first initially gave it, basically after he was born, and you know that was the first time, and then over the years as we've presented, we've added to the story um, things that have unfolded since (laughs) his birth. And as you hear our our presentation, you will see that this little trooper got through quite a few things and we're very thankful to God for his providence and things as you'll see that if, if God wasn't there, it'd be some pretty amazing coincidences. And so, as we conclude our thankfulness series, we would like to take the opportunity to share the story of our youngest son, his struggles for his life, and how these struggles demonstrate God's faithfulness against all odds and against the wisdom of man, and how that taught us to be truly thankful even during hard times, we will combine our story, as I said before, with um, the push for abortions because we experience this 
push during the pregnancy with our son here and various findings in the process. And so our son's story recognizes the miracle of life and how precious and valuable it really is. And we think about the society today, we see a lot of uh, politics, we saw the Texas heartbeat bill and the uproars about this. We definitely live in a society where people don't recognize the value of life. They don't believe that all lives are worth fighting for. They think that some lives are worth fighting for and others are not. You know, we have the mantra, black lives matter, and anyone who says all lives matter is told, you know, that that's racist and so on. You know, we have to focus on some lives and, you know, and not all black lives, but some black lives, not the unborn black lives. And yeah, so we live in a society that doesn't believe that all lives are worth fighting for. And many people think that life is something that's disposable, particularly the life of someone other than oneself. It's like a dog-eat-dog world out there, and you seek your own life and everyone else's life. You can sacrifice. People are taught that it is perfectly fine to sacrifice the life or well-being of others for their own convenience and comfort. I note that strong families used to be the backbone of society decades ago where hard work and self-reliance and sacrifice for others were the virtues that promoted progress in society. But now people are taught to look after their own lives and convenience at the expense of the very lives of other people. The life of a living, growing child is now disposable, an option. We definitely see that in the propaganda from Planned Parenthood. If it is thought to infringe on the comforts of those on whom it depends. This reminds me of a verse uh, that we've given in our presentation. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So you should consider the lives of others even better than their, yourselves, and particularly the life of your own child in the womb. Every child in the womb fights for its own survival, and we believe that every child should be allowed a fighting chance for the highest quality of life possible. The story of our son, our youngest son, is a story of a baby fighting for survival and fighting to prove to the world that he is very much alive despite the medical indicators. He's fighting to prove that life is in God's hands and not at the whims of an imperfect medical profession or out of the convenience of parents. So, sweetheart, you want to talk about um, the pregnancy uh, uh, with our youngest son there and what happened there? <laughs> sure. So, yes, I remember that we were very excited to be expecting our second baby. Mm. And that excitement very quickly turned to concern as we had our first ultrasound at eight weeks. 
And that was primarily because I was bleeding and they wanted to make sure everything looked okay. When they did the ultrasound, they saw that there was what's called a subchorionic hemorrhage. And that's just the site where the baby implants in the uterus and it can cause a little bit of bleeding. A lot of times that is associated with a miscarriage. So the doctor was concerned that this could be the early signs of miscarrying. Not too long after that, though, we were able to do another ultrasound at 11 weeks. And this time, the ultrasound showed that the baby had what they call nuchal translucency, and that's where there's fluid between the skin and the spine of the baby, and that measured right at the 3 millimeter threshold. And this excess fluid is usually an indication of a chromosome abnormality, such as Down syndrome. So during that appointment, the doctor pulled us aside after the ultrasound, and she told us what the findings were, and she really strongly urged us to consider an abortion because the risk of miscarrying, the risk of having a Down syndrome baby, and she said it would be the easiest thing for us to do. And we should really consider that. And I know we're both oh, pro-life. Yes, and <laughs> I was just kind of taken aback by how forceful that doctor was yeah. to pressure us into considering abortion at that time. Mm, yeah, I remember being at work and giving my coworkers updates on things that were going on. And yeah, I mentioned about the doctor pressuring us to get an abortion because it could be something like Down syndrome. And I remember telling one coworker, if I have to change diapers for the rest of my life, so be it. <laughs> I remember exactly saying those words, you know, if this means that I have to change diapers for the rest of my life, so be it, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know, like, we talked about it, we're like, Mm, okay we know that we trust god in the situation and we're going to trust him with the life of our baby and we would never consider an abortion Mm, yeah so because we decided to go ahead and continue with the pregnancy this doctor wanted us to go to a high risk pregnancy doctor and practice to do another ultrasound so that was about 12 weeks in our pregnancy that we did this ultrasound and I remember mm. this one was very scary oh, yes. as soon as we arrived at the parking lot for the hospital there and I was getting out of the car I just felt this huge gush of fluid and I was like oh no what's happening and it was blood and I was like oh no we just miscarried mm. yeah and I hardly remember even getting into the clinic there um <laughs> Yeah, I do remember one point there when we're, I think we're going inside. I'm trying to remember what point it was, but I remember I was just kind of like in shock and trying to process it. And then I remember you telling me like, it's okay to cry. (laughs) And then I'm like, okay, is there something wrong with me that I'm not crying? But it was mostly because I was like in shock trying to figure out what to do. So I was actually trying to force myself to cry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and we were sitting in the 
office like waiting for the doctor to come in and do the ultrasound and I remember we were just like praying and crying and mm-hmm. you were holding my hand and I was looking at you I was like I do not want to look at the ultrasound no. screen yeah. during this and then the doctor started to do the ultrasound and I just remember him saying man look at this little <laughs> guy just bouncing everywhere and I was like what <laughs> yeah. so I quickly looked and there was our little guy just bouncing around in there and oh all right my yeah. favorite ultrasounds to do on women are the 11 and 12 week ones yeah. because those babies are active and you can see like the whole baby on the screen and mm, it's just yeah. so cute oh. <laughs> yeah so that was kind of a huge change from going from all right, yeah. we just lost our baby too. Yeah. Oh, look at this bouncy little guy. <laughs> yeah, and so it was like, okay, well then how do we explain the bleeding? <laughs> yeah, so the doctor said that the placenta pulled away from the uterine wall a little bit and that created some blood clots behind there and that's where all the bleeding was coming mm. from. Yeah. And at this ultrasound, he saw that the nuchal translucency measurements had actually gone down quite a bit and they said that was pretty rare for that to decrease so quickly. That was just over a week. Mm, yeah. So that was pretty amazing. And I know we still tease our son about this today, but we're like, you were practicing to play Switch in the womb there. Yeah. So when he plays Nintendo Switch, he actually kind of jumps around, you know, with his controller. He gets pretty intense and then he can end up sweating like as if he had a, an intense workout in the gym, just, you know, being so into the game and jumping around. <laughs> it's pretty entertaining there. Yeah. Oh, so cute. <laughs> so because we did have that small separation of the placenta at that point that was causing the bleeding, that's another risk to add to our list of possibly miscarrying mm. because sometimes the placenta just doesn't get enough nourishment after that. So the next few weeks were pretty intense trying to take it easy um, mm. when we had our other toddler running around at the time <laughs> and just, yeah, praying that we could do the best and not knowing like if our baby would make it or not. So we made it to our 18-week appointment, and that's when they did another ultrasound to make sure that the placenta was still working well, the baby was growing, and at this appointment, the doctors found that there were water cysts on the brain and some calcium deposits in the heart. The doctor told us that each of these symptoms by themselves could be normal, but together, and then also with the earlier nuchal translucency, that all of these are really strong indicators that our baby would have chromosome abnormalities. And so at our 18-week appointment, this doctor was right in my face telling mm-hmm. me that I should really consider having an abortion mm-hmm. and not to put it off because the earlier I do it, the better it would be. Mm, and the easier yeah. it would be. Yeah. <laughs> I remember hearing that and kind of being frustrated and 
<laughs> and then what? Yeah, she was trying to push us to do all these chromosomal tests, you know, which we're thinking like, okay, the purpose of those is really to evaluate whether it's worth continuing the pregnancy. In our minds, it's like, it doesn't matter. We're still carrying the term. We're still going to have our baby. So that's why we declined all those pushes to take those tests because, you know, we're thinking, what's the point? It's not going to change our minds. <laughs> yeah. So one good thing about that ultrasound was that's when we found out we were having a boy. Oh, yeah. So that was kind of exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so our older son would then have a, a playmate. <laughs> yeah. I just remember after that ultrasound, just feeling so kind of defeated with the pressure from all Mm. the doctors of you need to do these tests, you need to consider abortion, like, all right, now we found something else wrong with your baby. And I know we talked about Mm. it a lot. We prayed about it a lot. And we're like, I don't even know if we want to do any other ultrasounds (laughs) because that's just making it even more stressful and Yeah, because we want to make sure we're getting him the care that he needs, you know, if there's anything that could, you know, have intervention that would help. But then, yeah, it's like a roller coaster. Every one of those could reveal, oh, here's something new to make you feel the pressure that this isn't worth it. And, you know, even though we're strongly committed to being pro-life here, it's like the medical profession trying to show you things that are wrong and then pushing abortion, you know, you can really feel the pressure of it, you know, even though no matter how committed you are, you know. Yeah, it definitely made me have a lot more compassion for girls that are in situations where they don't come from the background of having a strong pro-life position because the pressure that the doctors put on you about it is incredible. So if you don't really know where you stand on that, you could easily be persuaded Hmm. into thinking you're doing what's best for you and your baby, even though we know that that's not true. Hmm. So yeah, the rest of uh, the pregnancy, we had the specter and possibility of miscarriage or preterm labor going into labor early. We never expected to have him five days past his due date. (laughs) And we were even at the point of we're trying everything, spicy foods and long walks, (laughs) trying to get that little guy to come out. (laughs) We went to the Cheesecake Factory on a date and asked, what's your spiciest dish there? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we took walks around the block around our house. (laughs) And eventually we went to a physician to have an ultrasound just to make sure everything still looked okay since I was past my due date. And he said everything looked great. And also we were planning on doing a home birth with our baby as we had with our first one. And so we just want to make sure, you know, with his history early in the pregnancy that this was still going to be a good option. And the doctor said, yep, everything looked great. You know, go home, have your baby. And the next day we did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then (laughs) things start kicking into high gear here. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. So finally, our precious baby was born at home, just like we did with our first son. 
Oh, yeah. I do want to say something out here. I remember oh. <laughs> it, it was kind of crazy there. You had, um, <laughs> with the home birth there, we have it in this uh, big tub that we fill with water. So it's a water birth. And <laughs> I was trying to set up this heater in there and we plugged the heater in and then the power went out. And then, you know, so I'd go in the back panel outside the house and worried because you could be going into labor and I'm trying to get the power back on uh, trying to get this thing to work so you know your dad is a electrician so I'm going to call him and ask him what do I need to flip here to get this working again but everything we tried hey the power's back on plug the heater in the heater then the power would go out again and we found out that the heater was like shorting the circuit there and yeah it was like not a good time doing this like I need to be by my wife here not trying to figure out how to get the power on and the lights are off and everything you know yikes (laughs) yeah that was a quick labor two hours (laughs) oh yeah so yeah that went fast and that was before the midwife and her assistant came to help out so yeah that was pretty scary for me and I'm sure for you too sweetheart Um, (laughs) well I was kind of in my own zone. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you were. (laughs) Well, you did good. Good job, babe. (laughs) But with this little guy, when he was born, he was in severe respiratory distress. So after he delivered, then me and the baby get out of the tub and we're just getting him dried off and he did not want to take his first breath. Mm. And the midwives are highly trained and they initiated CPR and resuscitation. They called 911 and they actually got here pretty quick from what I remember. Yeah. But then they were terrified to (laughs) handle a newborn. Yeah. So they did not want to do any resuscitation (laughs) on him. So our midwives had to ride in the ambulance to the hospital doing resuscitation on him for, was it like 40 minutes? Mm, Yeah. By herself? Uh, Yeah, that had to be exhausting for her, but thank God for her, you know, because, yeah, he wouldn't have made it if she weren't doing this and the EMT didn't know how to do it. (laughs) Which was, you know, I mean, now that we're looking back on it, it's a little bit easier to tell the story and talk about it. But I remember for a while just being concerned if our paramedics in this area don't feel comfortable resuscitating infants. And we have a community that is full of young families and young kids. Like that can be pretty scary because not everyone's having home births, of course, but there are a lot of cases where newborns go home and Mm -hmm. they get RSV or, you know, something is going on. And so I had the opportunity to go and talk to the fire department paramedic um, facility and just like talk to them about our experience. Mm -hmm. And a few years after this birth here, yeah. And they did say that they had the lack of that training. And so they were actually sending their paramedics to labor and delivery floors and hospitals so they could participate in deliveries and births and resuscitation and just kind of keeping them more up to date and comfortable with their skills. So that was a neat thing to see that they saw that that was something that was lacking and took that on. So, yeah, so after her baby went to the hospital, the closest one to us didn't have very 
high acuity level of care, so they had to flight for life him to a different hospital where they were able to treat him better because of his lack of oxygen. For that long period of time, they had to do what's called a whole body cooling treatment where they keep the baby sedated and keep his body temperature really cold so it can hopefully prevent any brain damage. And during this whole time, we weren't able to hold him at all. And and just remember, we could stand right by his little bassinet and put our hand on his head. Yeah. (laughs) I remember many times, you know, I keep watching the monitor and we're like trying to get his levels up to a certain point. And I would keep whispering at him, you know, you can do it, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) And like something you don't really think of. We never got to hear him cry or make any sounds because of that. And then it's just a weird thing to not hear your baby cry. (laughs) um, (laughs) But 14 days after this, we finally got to hold him. And that was very precious moment yeah attached to you know with the tubes and needles and stuff but yeah definitely better than nothing there it was around it was like christmas time getting close to christmas so i remember them dressing him in a like a santa suit or something yeah so in total we were in the nicu for 21 days mm. and During that time, the doctors were saying that, you know, he has brain damage. We just don't know to what extent. And they thought that he was going to have severe seizures and they weren't sure if he was going to survive. And he probably has some sort of chromosome and abnormality. And then, you know, eventually they were able to order a chromosome test and that showed that he did not have any chromosome abnormalities. <laughs> and then the MRI showed that he had no brain damage, which was a huge answer to prayer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not that we wouldn't take care of him anyway, but yeah, it's it's definitely you know, every parent's a relief to want to have your child someone who would get to know you better. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I was just amazed at how the doctors were quite critical of us during that time, like being very negative about the fact that we had a home birth and oh, yeah. I heard that, that we wanted too. to breastfeed yeah. and um, asking to do skin to skin with him, which is kind of interesting because now they say like, okay, skin to skin and breastfeeding is the best thing you can do for these NICU babies. Yeah. And once we kept fighting for that, and once we were able to do that, our baby improved by leaps and bounds. And so then we got to go home just in time for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that was our, definitely after what seemed like eternity for those three weeks every day going in the NICU and wondering, you know, like first we thought we're, it, were, it was going to be like three days and then five days and stuff like, okay, we get through this. But yeah, it took a lot longer than we thought, for, you know, for reasons we'll find out later. But yeah, after three weeks, I'm wondering, okay, we're going to be able to be home for Christmas and we made it, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't like to remember those days oh, very yeah. much because yeah. that was really stressful. And yeah. But, I mean, thankfully we had some good support from family and church to where I could pretty much stay at the hospital during that time. And I know you had the stress of juggling work and then oh, you'd yeah. come to the <laughs> hospital for a few hours. And 
I remember we were like trying to stay at the hospital there and, you know, they didn't really have a room, but they allowed us to stay in one of the maternity rooms and then switch to another room, if I remember. And then yeah. eventually we were renting um, nearby, I don't know if it's not like a hotel, but some kind of place where they have a few rooms and yeah, and I didn't have much time off from work. I used days off or staying at the hospital until I didn't really have any PTO. So I'm like juggling work and going there whenever I'm not at work and stuff. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was a little bit crazy. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, through it all, we could definitely see God's mercy and grace and just his faithfulness through all of that. Yeah. Our baby had to go home on a little bit of oxygen, but we're... I mean, it was just like, they call it tiny whiff. It was a really small amount. So we were just, yes, amazed about how he did improve so quickly like that. And I mean, it was definitely a journey of ups and downs, kind of that roller coaster feeling. And yeah. I remember a few times driving, especially when he was sedated, we were able to come back to our house because he wasn't able to nurse yet. Mm. And driving back to the hospital was an hour drive to oh, get to yeah. the hospital. So <laughs> a lot of drives yeah. to and from the hospital. Yeah. Long drives. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember thinking of Job and be like, God help me to be like Job and yeah. just to praise you no matter what the outcome is. So I will praise you if he survives and I will praise you if he doesn't. And that is definitely a hard place to be and i'm sure our listeners here have <laughs> probably have experienced similar things too and it's not an easy place to be but we are thankful that god walks with us during those times yeah for sure now there's more <laughs> there's a lot more to the story you <laughs> know this isn't yes. the end <laughs> the rest of it kind of goes a little faster so <laughs> And I'll try not to get emotional now. <laughs> oh, no, don't worry about that, sweetheart. <laughs> Hello, this is Keith Helsley of Quest for Truth. And I'm Nathan Caldwell. Together, we talk about worldviews. Things that affect our pop culture today. We role-play the viewpoints represented. We sift through some of the faulty logic in them. And compare them to what scripture says. Once a month, we dig into the Bible. Going through one book at a time. One verse or phrase at a time. Exposing the truth in scripture. Truth exposed. Hey, that sounds like a good name for a podcast. I like it. How about explicit truth? No. Hmm. How about... Naked Truth? No, no, no! Check out Truth Exposed on the first week every month. You missed something, Keith. Our audio drama. As long as our protectorate players have all their parts in. And our lazy script department has the scripts ready. <laughs> um, isn't that you? Make that our hard-working script department. Watch for new audio dramas on the third week of the month. Quest for Truth. Because if it's true, it's true inside the Bible as well as outside the Bible. Check out life-truth.com.
So even though our little guy came home on just a little bit of oxygen, we had to follow up with cardiology. Well, so one of the problems in his birth was uh, he had an extreme pulmonary hypertension. So there was just a lot of pressure on his heart. Then they're like, okay, you know, we'll give him nitrous oxide treatments and oxygen. And that seemed to help it. So anyways, we had to still follow up with cardiology. But every time we went to the cardiologist, his pressures were getting higher. Mm, And so we would have to increase his amount of oxygen. And Mm. eventually the cardiologist was saying that there must be something else going on that we're not seeing because Mm. we should not be having to increase his oxygen this much and this far out. So when our little guy was about six months old, the cardiologist had us do a cardiac catheter just to get a better look at what his heart looked like and what was going on there. So when they did the cardiac catheter, they found that our baby had ASD, which is a hole in the heart. They knew he had that at birth, but when they did the cardiac catheter, they saw that that hole was a lot larger. Mm -hmm. And then he also had what's called pulmonary Partial anomaly. Pulmonary venous return. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Something like that, yeah. Yes, (laughs) P-A-P-V-R. The easier way to say it. Um, So basically, his pulmonary vein was on the wrong side of his heart. So normally, these two veins are on the left side of the heart, and Mm. he had one going into the right side of the heart. So Mm. it was mixing with unoxygenated blood. Oh, yeah. And that was causing that pressure. Yeah, so there's too much pressure on, basically, was it there's too much pressure on one side of his heart and not getting oxygenated on the other side of his heart. (laughs) Yes, so they determined that he would need to have open heart surgery and that the open heart surgery could actually correct both of the problems with the hole and the drainage on the wrong side of his heart. So they made, during the open heart surgery, they made what's called a baffle, kind of a little bridge to help the blood flow to the correct side of the heart. And they made that baffle through the hole in his heart. So they were able Mm -hmm. to close that up, which is pretty amazing how they can do that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And... I do want to say like, and it's kind of like, you know, when there's trials like this, like even at this time, a few weeks before this, you know, I was let go from my job. And, <laughs> and so that was really stressful because I'm like, okay, I can't even get any income and we have a son who needs to see specialists and, and we don't know what's going on or how to treat him or, or it keep, you know, it seems like it keeps getting worse. Like how am I supposed to handle this? But God provided because immediately, as soon as I got home from being let go from my job, I, and I also had a jury summons (laughs) to to add insult to injury there. And so I, but God blessed in that pretty much exactly one week from when I was let go, I got officially hired at another job. I'm a software developer. So this was a better job and it paid more. And, and then I even had to tell them for my start date, I had to push it a week later to allow for jury duty. So then I had to go to jury duty and, (laughs) and thankfully that only lasted for three days. Cause then I was kind of worried like, okay, I got to tell them a start date. Hopefully this won't go longer than a week, but then yeah, that means I couldn't get paid for my jury leave, but 
yeah, that's, that's just a minor thing there, but thankfully God provided and I was able to get a new job, you know, before then when we found out what the real issue was and how to fix it. And so then, yeah, you have the open heart surgery for our son at six months there. When before the open heart surgery, I forgot about this part. <laughs> oh, yeah. So during the cardiac catheter, they're not quite sure, but anyways, he ended up with an inguinal hernia. Mm. And so we had to have that repaired and they needed to repair it before the heart surgery oh, because yeah. during heart <laughs> surgery, you have pretty major fluid shifts. And with a weakened area with a hernia, that could become more disastrous. So we, I forgot if we had like one or two days mm. notice that Hell we were yeah. going to go in for the hernia surgery. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And then we had planned a oh, yeah. <laughs> quick little trip away for our anniversary. Oh, yeah. So it's like, okay, yeah, basically have the hernia surgery and then take it from the hospital and go up to our hotel to have our anniversary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and he was so cute. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was such a little trooper and just all smiles. And- yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And yes, so we had the heart surgery and then they said to expect to be in the hospital for about 10 days after having the heart surgery. But our little guy improved (laughs) so quickly that we got to go home in four days, I think. Yeah. It did seem really long to me, but but, yeah, four is shorter than 10. (laughs) So we got to go home and we're like, yay, we finally Mm. got things resolved. And then about 10 days after his surgery, I was putting him down for a nap, and I noticed his carotid artery was pulsing really fast. Mm. And I was thinking, this does not look normal. So I put his pulse ox on his finger to see what was going on, and it was reading kind of crazy numbers, like in the 200s. Mm. Wow. And I was like, is this for real? So I took my stethoscope out and was listening to him, and it was so fast, I couldn't even count his heart mm. rate. Yikes. I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, this is not good. So I knew that it could just be an arrhythmia. So there's a stimulus you can do. You just put frozen peas on the corners of the eyes to kind of get their heart to jump out of that arrhythmia. In the meantime, I called his cardiologist. He's like, yeah, try that. And then that wasn't working. So we brought him to the emergency room. And at the ER, they gave him three doses of a medication called adenosin. That's supposed to help get the high heart rates back to a normal rate again. I think his heart rate was like 260 to 280. Wow. And that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Because usually a baby's heart rate around that age would be like in the 120s. Mm. So, yes, very fast for that little guy. And the three doses of that medication was like the limit that they could actually give. And so they were trying to figure out like, do we need to send him off to another hospital or what are we going to do? Thankfully, his heart rate did come down and they sent us home, which, I mean, looking back, I was kind of like, why did they send us home so early? (laughs) That seems a little nerve wracking, but I mean, I was kind of glad to be back home too. We had him on a monitor and then 
just intermittent, I would monitor him. And then the next day around lunch, I was like, he's acting funny again. Mm. And so I checked his heart rate again and it was like in the 240s, I think that time. Mm. So we went to a different emergency room where they have the higher level of care for little ones. And by the time we got there, his heart rate was all the way up to the 320s. Yeah. Yeah. And they were trying to give him all sorts of different medications to get him out of that high heart rate. And the cardiologists were all in the hallway trying to figure out what they could do for him. And they're like, okay, try and hold him and see if you can calm him down. So I was holding him. And then all of a sudden he started turning blue and his eyes rolled back in his head. And all these people came rushing in the room and they're like, call the crash cart. He's crashing. And... His blood pressure was dropping and it was just pretty chaotic. And then I remember a nurse came over and she put her arm around me and she's like, who can we call to come here and help you? Mm. And that's when it kind of hit me like, oh my goodness, is he going to make it? Mm. And so I know the nurse tried calling you because you were at work, which wasn't too far from the hospital. Yeah. So I remember eventually getting the call and then, yeah, leaving work and rushing to the hospital. And then, yeah, as soon as I entered the room, then I kind of saw the scene of like all these nurses and doctors surrounding him and stuff. It was pretty scary. (laughs) Yeah. So thankfully, when they intubated him, that actually made his heart rate go down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the doctors, I remember they were saying like, wow, good thing you're a nurse and you noticed this. And, you know, he probably wouldn't have made it if you didn't notice this in time and acted quickly. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. But then I was like, yikes, that kind of puts a lot of pressure yeah. on us to definitely be vigilant into knowing what's going on with him. And then I was thinking too, I'm like, I think that's actually how God made moms and even dads, too. I think that God gave us, it's not just a nurse thing. I I think other (laughs) moms would have noticed that because he Hmm. gives moms and, I mean, we usually call it an intuition, but an insight to your children. I was going to say, yeah, you have both mother's intuition and nurse's intuition. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so when he was uh, recovering after that, they found that he had a blood clot in his heart Mm. at the site of the repair. So for the next, I forget how long it was, one or two months, I think, we had to give him injections Mm. to help the (laughs) blood clot dissolve. Yeah, like every day, you know, you have to try to stick the needle in him and have him cry and throw a fit. Like, yeah, that was not a fun time there, but it was like, hey, better than him crashing in the hospital, you know, yeah. Yeah, so he, yeah, definitely improved after that, and we actually got to go for a few years without, like, two major of complications, or I know we had to go to the hospital a few times with respiratory stuff, because with his heart, it's more centrally located, Mm -hmm. so his one lung is smaller, and that makes him more prone to getting respiratory stuff. The doctor said that he'll outgrow that, but we did end up in the PICU, the pediatric ICU, a couple of times because of his struggles with keeping his oxygen levels up and stuff. But we were kind of getting to the point where we're like, okay, I think we're over the worst mm-hmm. stuff. And I felt like we were kind of letting our guard down. Like, 
Yay. Yeah. We're like, we're doing good here. It's like we finally got to the heart of the matter in this, <laughs> <laughs> at least the heart of the matter. But then there's more than the heart of the matter. Yeah. So in 2017, our little guy started to complain of severe abdominal pain and was throwing up a lot. And at first we were thinking that maybe it was a food allergy. So we tried a few different ways of eliminating foods and seeing if there's something that made it worse or not. Mm-hmm. Like we were thinking it was something to do with mac and cheese. And poor <laughs> little guy, that's one of his favorite things to eat is mac and cheese. Um, so we eliminated that and, you know, tried all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like it was getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And then he was starting to throw up bile. And I was like, okay. Thinking back in my nursing mind, bile is usually a sign of obstruction. Mm. And I mean, it was a lot of bile, not just the normal bile you see, like if you are throwing up. So it was concerning. We brought him to the ER and he was like bent over in severe abdominal pain. We're like, this is not good. We can't get him relief. The ER doctor said, oh, he has a stomach flu. Let's give you some Zofran, Mm, maybe a little bit of Tylenol, and we'll send you home. Yeah, because at that point, he kind of just fell asleep from not getting much sleep, being exhausted and stuff. So then, yeah, it seemed like, okay, maybe that's it for now. But yeah. (laughs) So we followed up with our pediatrician the next day, and he said the same thing. And Mm. I was like, all right. I even offered to show because poor little guy threw up on the way to the doctor's office. And I was like, I'll even show you his throw up. He's like, oh, I don't need to see it. I'm sure it's just normal flu throw up. And Hmm. yeah, he's like, here, I'll just give you a bunch of Zofran because it'll probably run through the family. And Hmm. I was like, okay, I just feel like we're missing something. Yeah. And then eventually it was just getting worse. And so we ended up going to a hospital that had a pediatric emergency room. And we had a great doctor at that point. And she agreed that there was something going on. This didn't seem right. And so she did an ultrasound and a CAT scan. And then they said that there's something going on with his intestines. It looks like a severe obstruction, but they can't even tell because it looked so horrible on Mm. there. She said, this is an emergency. We're sending you down to a better hospital. And he went in for surgery that evening. And when they went in to do the surgery, they found that he had what they call congenital bands wrapped around his intestines. So when a baby is first developing in the womb, the intestines are actually on the outside of the body and then they grow and kind of pull inside the stomach and there's a fine casing around the intestines to protect them. And then the intestines pretty much absorb that lining. But in our little guy's case, the lining created bands and wrapped around his intestines and that was creating that obstruction. So they were able to release that, and for the most part, that gave him some relief. Yeah. And we <laughs> noticed some improvements for yeah. about the next year, you think? 
Yeah, I don't know if it lasted that long. <laughs> I remember taking him out to get ice cream <laughs> a few days after this and stuff and like kind of celebrating, yay, you know, we made it for this. But then I can't remember if it was like several weeks where he started to have pain, oh, you know, a few yeah. weeks later after this and he started to have pain. So we're going back in and the hospital, he'd get basically cleaned out again and then we'd be back in again you know in and out of the hospital with this and we're wondering what's going on but basically what we were told was his intestines are just kind of having to get used to this I think get mm -hmm. the surgery like healing from the surgery mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we're, you know that was kind of the hope that we're going through okay we'll just get through this it'll just be a, a short-term thing you know while he's healing but yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I remember they even did a GI study and they saw like part of his intestine was extremely enlarged. So mm -hmm. it was taking a long time for his intestines to empty. They said it was about 10 times as long as it should be for it to empty and that's why it would just kind of back up and cause him pain and throwing up and yeah they're like okay it's probably just from the surgery just give it some time to heal just try and keep him on liquid foods and oh and their big thing was like oh you know just try not to make sure he doesn't get constipated <laughs> oh, yeah. all right that's not the problem yeah, he's fine with that because we'd have to keep giving him miralax to keep things flowing but that didn't seem to keep him out of the hospital and then at this time as we kept going in and out of the hospital we were actually expecting our third child who was our oldest daughter you know and that was really rough because you're you know having to stay with him in the hospital and morning sickness you know like trying to lie on a hospital bed with him you know and and as it, we kept going in and out over time getting further and further along in the pregnancy uh, I was really getting worried like this is crazy you know like was thinking like what's going to happen if if we're if I'm having to take you to the hospital or whatever to deliver our child while at the same time he's having an intestinal attack here you know like how how am I going to handle this like how do we even take care of our I take care of you take care of our uh, daughter we're expecting here while this is going on and there's no you know end in sight no solution at this time nothing we had no idea what was going on or how long this would take so yeah that was really worrying me at this point <laughs> but yeah i mean thank god with his providence in this because there seemed to be a, a hiatus <laughs> with our son here you know eventually it just faded off for several months so we got to go to the hospital have our daughter there and then several months you know into the end of the year yeah nothing happened with our son at this time until yeah <laughs> Yeah, so it was the next year in 2018 that our little guy started to have abdominal pain again. Mm -hmm. And it was very similar to what you would see in kids that had severe appendicitis. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was just really concerning. And the doctors just kept kind of blowing it off <laughs> and mm -hmm. saying, you know, it's the stomach flu or mm -hmm. he's constipated or, yeah. you know, we need to do food diaries and I was like, okay, he is, you know, mm. balled up, mm. 
crying in pain and this is not normal. Like he's a tough little guy. (laughs) And eventually we had a doctor, our doctor who is familiar with our son suggests that she could do a laparoscopic surgery to kind of see what was going on with intestine better and if there's something that they could do to fix it at that time they were mostly considering a small bowel resection where they remove a little bit of the intestine and so once they did the well eventually yeah his pain was just getting so bad that we it was like okay it was starting to get the interval was starting to get shorter and shorter. So it was like every two weeks he'd wake us up in the middle of the night and have abdominal pain. And then it was like every week. And then eventually he was getting to the point where it was like every day. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember telling you if one more doctor says that he just has the stomach virus, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I might lose it because yeah. there's something else going on. And so finally, like we were pretty insistent on having the laparoscopic surgery, which is not the easiest thing as parents to yeah. say, yes, go and yeah. you know, do a surgery on my kid. But yeah. we were like, there something going on. We just really need to figure this out. And thankfully yeah. they did it and they discovered that he had what's called congenital Meckel's diverticulitum. And that was just where part of his intestine was enlarged or kind of a huge bulge. And that was how he was born was with that. And um, they removed that part. And I know he struggled a little bit just trying to get his intestines moving again after that. But it didn't seem like it was too long. And yeah, so he's been... <laughs> it's kind of, I'm like, I don't know, can we say <laughs> that he has been good and we haven't had any problems since and he can eat mac and cheese again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so far at, at that, after this, then it was like, okay, as far as we could see, no heart issues and no intestinal issues. <laughs> and yeah, so <laughs> uh, the story of our son, you know, definitely has changed our lives forever and you know, we definitely see the providence and miracles of God. You know, there's so many timing issues, so many, as we mentioned, your mother, the nurse's intuition, like so many times where it was like, if someone just wasn't happening to check or at the right time or have the right medical person, whatever, there's so many times where he probably would not have made it (laughs) and so yeah it's definitely an amazing miracle of god that we believe you know he could use this little guy to change the world we don't know how he's going to use our son in the future but we pray that the testimony that you've heard from us about him will give you hope and strength and the testings and trials that you might face in your life and so Our son continues to grow and thrive despite everything that he's been through since he was in the womb. You know, he's he's had to be a fighter for years from the beginning. (laughs) Even inside the womb, he had to fight for his life. And when he showed numerous times, even when others were unsure if he would survive and any of the medical indications, he fought against those and to show that he was very much alive and very much willing to live. (laughs) So our our son is uh, a testimony to a scary reality (laughs) 
that plagues our society and, you know, the wisdom of the medical profession, the wisdom that told us terminate the pregnancy, the wisdom that told us it's the stomach, it's a stomach flu and all that. <laughs> um, so we should ponder some questions. Um, how many medical professionals advise parents to end the life of their unborn child based solely on findings that could be false positives. And as we saw, things like the nuchal translucency, uh, indications of chromosomal abnormalities, and the idea that he could have Down syndrome, and he definitely did not have that. Even if he had other stuff, he didn't have brain damage, as they thought. And another question, how many parents have been pressured to take this advice? And they're told that they're doing the best thing for their child to end the child's life, even if the child is perfectly healthy or just needs a little bit of assistance. And how many thousands or even hundreds of thousands of misdiagnosed or even perfectly healthy children have been denied life when they're fighting to prove themselves? And also, final question here is, why can't we simply trust God with the lives of our children and respect their right to fight for their own survival? And now, thank you for listening to this episode of Truth Espresso. But we are not done with this topic. We're going to continue and conclude our series of episodes on Thanksgiving and being thankful for life as we talk about more of our story with the life of our children and some life-affirming clinical work that my wife does also as we fight against the abortion industry that isn't very thankful for life. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.